Revelation chapter number 15. We took about 10 weeks to get through chapter 14, not because we were preaching every Sunday on chapter 14. There were several Sunday afternoons that we did not meet or looked at another theme. But this afternoon, we're going to do the entire chapter 15. So we're going to move right along. Of course, it is only eight verses. Let's ask God's blessing. Lord, meet now with us. Guide my thoughts and my words. Help me to say those things that you'd have me to say. And meet the needs of your people. May their minds and be open to the truth of your word. And we pray that you will encourage them from what they read and understand. Uh, prophecy is a very uh, unique subject matter. And it, it creates a keen interest in our minds of what's to come. We pray that as we look at this book, there's so much information given to us, but we pray as we look at it, we will receive from it what you want us to have. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are leaving the parenthetical section of the book of Revelation. The parenthetical section began with chapter 10 and went through chapter 14. And in this section, we were just bombarded with information. A lot of stuff and a lot of events that we are told are going to transpire. However, since it was a parenthetical section, a parenthesis at the beginning and at the end, even though it's not in your Bible here as such, it does not move the timeline of the events of the tribulation. We are entering into what would be considered the last half of the tribulation, the second half of the tribulation, the first half being up through chapter number 9. Many of the events, most all of the events of chapter 10 through 14 will transpire in the second half of the tribulation period. But with this chapter 15, we transition back into the timeline events uh, that are taking place during the tribulation on earth. And so in chapter 8 through 11, just a way of review, we had seven trumpets that we were introduced to. And now we are proceeding to seven bowls or vials of the wrath of God. So we look at chapter 15. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. So point number one, the sign of the seven angels with the last plagues, uh, John says, I saw a sign in heaven, or I saw an event in heaven. This is the third sign thus far as we've gone through the revelation. The first one is in chapter 12, verse 1. The, woman, the image of the woman that represents Israel. Chapter 12, verse 3, Satan in the form of a red dragon. Chapter 3, this one that we're looking at now, the angels of destruction with the seven final plagues. He says this sign was great and marvelous. It was huge and extraordinary. It was an attention getter. It was just big. I mean, it just caught his attention. It was just mind-boggling what he sees. In the Greek, you have the seven plagues or the last ones for the seven angels having the seven plagues. These are the last of the plagues. In them 
in these seven plagues, verse 1, it says, is filled up with the wrath of God. In them, the wrath of God is complete, the New King James Version says. And the Christian Standard Bible says, for with them, God's wrath will be completed. And that's what the idea is here. They're filled up with the wrath of God. God is going to pour out his final wrath. And when he's done with these seven vials, these seven bowls, his wrath will be satisfied. He will have done what he intended to do with his anger. The word plague, seven angels with seven last plagues, the word plague is, is the idea of a blow or a wound, something that's painful. This is going to be a painful time for the people that are on the earth that are unbelievers, the recipients of this. And it is filled up. It is filled up with the wrath of God. It brings to a conclusion or to complete. So the idea of verse 1 is, okay, we're getting ready for something enormous. It's going to have seven parts. It is all about God's wrath. But when these seven parts are done, the wrath is done. I can't imagine the enormity of the wrath that's going to fall on the earth in these times. The first half of the tribulation period will look like it was a holiday compared to the second half. The judgment that is going to fall, the, the growing of evil, the attack of the enemy, trying to overthrow God because he knows this is his last stand. And to what extent he will rile the, the unbelievers up. And yet God's wrath will be much more severe than anything that Satan can do. In verse 2, he says, I've seen this marvelous thing. In verse 2, I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name standing on the sea of glass having the harps of God. So here he sees something different. As it were, John says, I saw as it were. So John is saying, I saw something that resembled a body of water clear as glass with fire coming out of it or mingled. The word mingled is coming out of. A similar sea is described in chapter 4, verse 6. These could be one and the same. Those standing on the sea of glass, he says, I saw a sea of glass mingled with fire and them that had gotten the victory standing, in the last part of verse 2, on the sea of glass. It could be they were standing on it or they were standing beside it. Just a minor detail. We won't argue whichever position you choose to hold concerning that. They're standing on this glass. Now notice those that are standing there. They're described. Point 2B1. They had not surrendered in the war against satanic evil. These people are living in a much more vile and wicked time than you and I are living in the first half of this tribulation period. And the, the pressure to succumb to the wickedness and the evil 
is just enormous. But these people that are there standing on this sea or beside this sea of glass have overcome that. They have not yielded to the pressure of satanic evil. And he tells us this. They have the victory over the beast. The created being of Satan, which the world was required, if you go back and read previously, were required to identify with and worship. And if you didn't identify with and worship the beast, you didn't live. You didn't conduct business. You were left out there all alone to fend for yourself. And if if those people who worship the beast found you and caught you, they more likely would kill you. But these people have had victory over the beast. The victory over his image. They have not bowed down in worship to the beast. They have victory over his mark. They have refused the identifying mark with the beast. If you go back and read in the previous chapters, you'll find that people were required to receive the mark of the beast. These have not. The victory over the number of his name, the number of the beast. They had not had the number of the beast imprinted on them. But these people that are standing on this sea of glass have chosen Christ instead of the world. They have chosen whatever came with that, whatever struggles, whatever problems came with that. They were willing to endure that. They have taken a position and a stand against evil and against wickedness. And it says they have the harps of God. The idea here is identifying with God and the worship of God. These people are there to worship God. So he says, I see this enormous sign of the seven angels with the seven plagues. And opposite that, I see this wonderful, peaceful sign in heaven with these people who have overcome the wickedness and the evil of Satan. And now they're standing in the very presence of God, getting ready to worship God. That's a good choice. But it came with a price. It wasn't something that came easily. These people paid for it. But we go on and said, And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints, who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name. For thou only art holy. For all the, all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. So we see point three, the song that those sing and it's described for us. First of all, it's called the song of Moses, the servant of God. You'll find that song, and we're not going to look at it, over in Exodus 15. It talks about Moses saying a song and he taught it to the people. This is right after they've crossed the Red Sea and have seen Pharaoh and his army defeated and destroyed, and now the pressure of being chased by the enemy is gone. They have now experienced relief and victory over the satanic enemy, and now they're going to worship. So it's similar in that way. Then it's called the Song of the Lamb. And we see the song's content described. The Song of the Lamb. 
There is, first of all, point C, one, praise and adoration. Two, there's a testimony of the achievements of God. Three, there's a recognition of the sovereignty of God. And four, there's an identification of God with his children. Look at it again, verse three. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. We don't always see that title given to God. But he is indeed the King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. The song described here, uniquely given to those who have overcome the beast and the attack of the beast. Verse 5 through 7, we see John's focus is diverted to something else in heaven now. Verse 5, after that I looked and behold the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. And the seven angels came out of the temple having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and forever. So we see this term, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven. Now the tabernacle is introduced to us in the Old Testament in Numbers 9, 17 to 23, we are already introduced to the tabernacle, the tent, the tent in the wilderness that they would put up when the people stopped, when God's kind of glory stopped and rested. They would put up this tabernacle, this tent. His glory would rest upon that tent. And they stayed there till the glory raised up off of that tent and moved and they knew it was time to go. Wouldn't it be awesome if God gave us that kind of clear direction today in our lives? I mean, we just had this cloud we followed everywhere and where he wanted us to go, we would follow and where he wanted us to stop. I mean, it would be awesome. But we do have the cloud. We have right here in this book that he's given to us. We have everything we need. We don't need this experience. We just need faith in and obedience to the word of God. But we find here they would, the cloud would be present. Then when they would, the cloud lifted up and moved on, they'd take down the tent at the tabernacle and they'd move on. Wherever they stopped, they set it up again. And we have this introduction and this concept between the tabernacle and the glory of God overshadowing that tabernacle. In Numbers chapter 10, verse 11 through 12, especially verse 11, it's the only other place in Scripture where it's described as the tabernacle of the testimony. The tabernacle of the testimony. Three, this, test, this temple could be the tabernacle in the wilderness. It could be. It could be the actual tabernacle in the wilderness, preserved by God 
Or if God chose not to preserve that, it could be a replica. But one thing we know about it, it is a tabernacle which seems from all indication to resemble the Old Testament tabernacle of the children of Israel as they wandered through the, the wilderness. We see that this tabernacle is in heaven and out of it come seven angels with the seven plagues. These seven angels are sanctioned by God to deliver these seven judgments. You say, okay, so what? I don't know how many angels there are. I mean, the Lord said himself, if I wanted to be delivered from this that I'm about to endure, I could call for legions of angels right now. And they would deliver me. The Lord Jesus was saying, I could call for thousands of angels right now and I could be delivered from this. But that's not what I came here for. So based on that, we have no idea how many angels there are. But God has handpicked these seven angels. What's unique about them? I don't know. We find some description about all of them. But these seven angels have been chosen by God to deliver these last seven acts of God's wrath on evil. And these seven angels are very special, I would say. We see they're described that they're clothed in pure white linen, which is a picture, pure white linen in the Bible is a picture of holiness and purity. They have their breasts girded with golden girdles. Or they're wearing a golden sash around their chest, which represents ceremonial dress and symbolizes authority. These are pure vessels that God has chosen, and he has given them his authority to pour out these seven vials, seven bowls of wrath on the people. So third, these seven angels will be pure vessels having the authority of God behind the plagues that they will inflict upon the ungodly of the world. Then we see these seven vials full of the wrath of God. They're called golden vials. In scripture, gold is a symbol of purity and holiness. And these goblets or bowls, which they could be called, are used as instruments of purity and they contain the pure wrath of God against sinful mankind. The pure wrath of God against sinful mankind. I would dare say most of the time our wrath is not pure. It comes filled up with sinful behavior and sinful words. Only Almighty God can have pure wrath, sinless wrath, that which God is going to do. No one can say that he is unjust 
in what he's doing. Now, there will be plenty unsaved say that. But in the reality of things, our God is pouring out his wrath on these people, which is pure wrath against the sinfulness of mankind. For thousands of years, God has been holding off on dealing with Satan and his followers. How much garbage has God put up with down through these thousands of years from sinful mankind? I mean, Romans 1 and 2 describes to some detail that kind of wickedness. Paul describes some of it in some of his lists. But to have this kind of insult on you and toward you as a holy and righteous and pure God, and yet you do nothing about it except create the judgment on those who deserve it. But now this time has come when God says it is enough. I'm finished with it. I'm going to deal with it once and for all. Not individually, but I'm going to deal with it in mass. This wrath, the word wrath is the vengeance, the punishment, the destruction wreaked by someone in anger. But it's holy anger. It's not unholy anger. The wrath of God who lives forever and ever, it's described. It's the wrath of God. It's from God himself. This wrath is holy and just. And the God who lives forever and ever, this wrath comes from one who has been around for all time and knows all, thus his wrath is appropriate action. These vials full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And John says, I see this about to take place. And then he gives us a display of the presence of God in verse 8. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. For some reason, which we are not told here, God chooses to cut off anyone entering this temple, this tabernacle. And if you go back and read the Old Testament accounts of the tabernacle in the wilderness, when God's glory was on that tabernacle and, and tent, people stayed away. That was the very presence of God on the people there. And here we see God again displaying that very presence in the midst of what's going to take place. The word filled with smoke comes from, or you can see a following reference in Exodus 40 and Numbers 19. God displays his majesty, his splendor, and his omnipotence. Till the seven plagues of the seven angels were filled. His glory here is a continual reminder of the one who is sending these plagues. All in heaven and all on earth must stop and watch the mighty power of God on display. No one will be able to stop it. 
No one will be able to dilute it. No one will be able to soften the blow. No one will be able to change its outcome. This wrath is going to fall on those who, as Paul, we saw this morning, said, have been anathema. If the Lord were to rapture the church today, which he could, by the way, in about three and a half or four years, this would all start taking place. I mean, that's, a, that's something to think about. My question to you this afternoon is, should the Lord choose to rapture the church out this week? And as we know from the scripture, these events would begin to take place. And especially the second half of this tribulation and these plagues. Where would you be? Would you be with the Lord? Or would you be one of those left on the earth as an unbeliever who has rejected Christ and chosen the way of Satan and taken on the mark of the beast? Listen, we're living in a society today that wants you, especially the young people, to take on the mark and the thinking of this ungodly world. And is wanting you to downplay the authority of Scripture and downplay Christianity and laugh at God and laugh at heaven and hell and just go your way doing your thing knowing that nothing's going to happen. That's what the world wants you to do. And it's working very hard at getting you, especially you young people. The world and Satan wants you to be destroyed with him. He knows what's going to happen to him. He doesn't believe it, but he knows. He's a Bible authority, by the way. He knows how to twist the scriptures. Are you ready to meet him? Are you ready so that you know that you will never experience these seven plagues? They're going to happen. And when we begin to get into them, it's going to be awful what we read, what we learn. If that began in four years, would you be in heaven or would you be on the earth? Lord, I thank you in Jesus' name that I know on the authority of what the Bible teaches and having had the Holy Spirit convict my heart of my sinfulness, and show me that Jesus was my only hope and giving me the faith as a 15-year-old to trust Christ as my Savior, I know I will not be on the earth when these things take place. I will not be a recipient of these horrific events that are going to transpire. I thank you, God, for your grace, for your mercy, for your salvation. And I pray, God, if there is anyone here this afternoon, I know if I were to ask for a show of hands, most everybody would raise their hands that they're a believer. And I trust that they are. But Lord, there could be someone here like I was, a young person, convincing myself every day that I was a Christian when I knew that my life didn't add up to a Christian's life. And I would just go ahead and convince myself, going back to having prayed a prayer 
And having gotten baptized, I knew I was okay. But then there, that one opportunity, having put up with my resistance long enough, you spoke to me and said, tonight's the night. If you don't get saved tonight, you're going to go to hell. And in my trembling fear of hell, I came to the cross and trusted Christ as my Savior. I pray that's not the case here this afternoon and anyone young or old, but that all of us have truly settled this matter with the Lord. And if we have God, I pray that we will have also settled in our hearts that we are not going to take on the marks of the world, the attitude of the world, the sinful behavior of the world, but that we have decided that we will follow Jesus. No matter what, we will not turn back because we know our only hope is in Christ. So God, if there's anyone here today struggling with that, I pray that the Spirit of God will do a work in their heart and mind to show them there's only one hope, and that's in Christ. The world is vile and wicked and treacherous and deceptive and wants our utter destruction and will lead us down a path that seems to be from the world's description, the most wonderful thing in all of life. But once we've traveled that path and destroyed our lives and our testimony and are reaping the consequences of our wicked living, the world will look at us and laugh and go on to someone else. God, don't let that happen to anyone here. Help us to remain faithful till Jesus comes or till you take us home. Guide us through this week. Help us to make wise choices for the glory of God. And help us to follow the authority of the scriptures. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.